The following program does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Reality Radio 101, its advertisers and sponsors, or its listening audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, here on Reality Radio 101. In this radio show and podcast, we learn about fruit trees, permaculture, arboriculture, and so much more. So if you love trees, and especially fruit trees, or if you're interested in living a more sustainable life, then this is the place for you. I'm your host, Susan Poisner of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, OrchardPeople.com. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner. To contact Susan live right now, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, right to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. Hi, everyone. There's a saying about pear trees. They say that you grow pears for your heirs. And it means that what you do today isn't for your own benefit. It's for the benefit of the next generation. Now, if you grow modern pear varieties, you might be wondering where the saying comes from. New pear varieties aren't particularly slow growing. They can start producing a harvest in maybe three to five years. But that wasn't always the case. Heirloom pear varieties can take many more years to mature. So in centuries past, if you planted a pear tree, you did it not for yourself, but as a gift for generations to come. Heirloom pear trees can be different in other ways as well. Often they grow to be really large and some heirloom pear trees can live and produce for up to 400 years. Talk about a gift for your children and grandchildren. In today's show, we are going to be talking about old pear trees. My guest is Barry Masterson of Kirtle Writer Cider. Barry is Irish, but he now lives in rural Germany with his wife, Ines. And Barry is passionate about using pears from historic trees to make Perry cider. We are going to hear from Barry in just a minute. But first, I want to hear from you. Send us an email during the live show with a question, a comment, or just to say hi, and we will enter you into today's contest. Our prize today is a book called Grow Your Own Mini Fruit Garden, Planting and Tending Small Fruit Trees and Berries in Gardens and Containers. And that book is valued at $27.99. So you can enter the contest right now by sending us an email to instudio101 at gmail.com. That's instudio101 at gmail.com. And remember to include your first name and where you're writing from. We look forward to hearing from you. 
Now, let's dig into today's topic. Barry, welcome to the show. Thanks, Susan. It's nice to be here. It's lovely to have you here. And I'm really curious about when you actually started to get interested in old pear trees. Was this a lifelong thing for you? <laughs> no, not at all. Um, I like to blame the dog. <laughs> As basically, uh, my obsession started when we, when we got her about three years ago. So um, by that time, we'd been making cider for a few years already. And everything was about the apples and seeking out good varieties to plant uh, in, our, in our orchard. And uh, but when I started taking the dog out on walks uh, off the beaten track through the farmland surrounding our village here, um, I was really struck by just how many big old pear trees there were. And it so became a, a kind of a side quest when we were out and about to try and find more and more of these pear trees. And uh, yeah, along with that, though, my interest grew in terms of why these trees were there. So it's like a, a skeleton of a lost landscape. And what were they used for? Because there was no real surviving culture of, of perry around this area, at least none that I knew of. So this in turn led down a rabbit hole of, uh, you know, looking at old literature, trying to piece together the history of, of how pears and perry uh, were making links across Europe in the past. Well, I am curious because I've seen your beautiful pictures of these pear trees. And what I'm seeing is this landscape, like huge farmland, just plain farmland. And then there's sort of one big, huge pear tree here and one big, huge pear tree there. Why would that happen? Why would somebody break up their farmland in that way? Yeah, this is why I often refer to it as a skeleton of a lost landscape, because in the past, so before, let's say, uh, mechanization uh, took, took a hold, let's say, in the 1950s, it was quite popular, uh, in, at least in the German landscape, to have the trackways between fields and field boundaries. So this kind of uh, land on the fringes that weren't really good for growing any other kind of crop, they'd plant apple and pear trees there. And in the 1950s, there was a kind of a rationalization of the farmland associated with you know, the need for bigger fields uh, to deal with mechanization. And uh, they basically removed a lot of these rows of trees. They replanted orchards to compensate for that. Um, but the stuff that was left, there would have been kind of apple and pear trees left. But, uh, you know, apples don't live as long as pear trees. They've gone, they've died, they were never replaced. And it's the pear trees that uh, are remaining. And uh, this is why it's really unusual. You see, literally, as you said, a, a pear tree in the middle of a field. And, uh, you know, probably marks where a boundary used to be or where a trackway used to be. Okay, so you've got these big old pear trees and you are checking them out. How old do you think they could be? Um, who would have planted them? You already mentioned that they can grow up to 400 years old. So uh, around here in our area, I'm not seeing that old. Um, I think in the 1950s or let's say the post-war period, it looks like there was a period of planting uh, up to the 50s. So there's lots of around like 70 or 80 years old. Um, then there's another kind of group. Uh, so I go around measuring the, the circumference of the uh, of the trunks and then try to estimate the ages. There are formulas for doing it. Obviously, I can't count the ring, so it's only ever an estimate. Uh, but then we've got another group around you know, 120 to 140 years old, and then a smaller group that are around the 180 to 200 years old. And there's one up the hill from uh, where we live, uh, past our orchard, and it's just such an impressive tree sitting on top of a hill with a 3.7 meter uh, circumference trunk. It's, it's just magnificent. Wow, perfect for hugging. 
definitely a tree you, <laughs> you want to hug <laughs> you need a few people to hug it properly you need a few people to go in a circle and hug it so here i am imagining you uh and ns your wife in the middle of the night sneaking out to go harvest these trees because they don't belong to you how do you get a right to 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 steal all the fruit what's a, how did that happen <laughs> we're very careful not to steal or at least not to steal too much <laughs> But uh, we're kind of lucky because, uh, well, there's, there's a lot of farmers around here. And if we know who owns a tree and it's a variety that I'd like to test in, a, in making a peri, I'll just ask. And, you know, nobody is using the fruit anymore. There's very few people actually making use of these uh, of these pears and they're just lying there rotting into the field. I mean, it's not a waste for nature. It's not a waste. Uh, you know, nature will recycle and uh, the birds and the, the rats and whatever and the, the wild born deer will will take their share. Uh, but if we ask, they generally let us. And uh, other times, then because our reputation for looking for pears is growing, uh, we might have some farmers come and say, oh, by the way, I've got a Schweitzer Wasserbirne up the field there. If you want to use that, you can. So, yeah, we, we get we get permission first. There's well, a couple I'm glad of trees that we it. don't have permission <laughs> for, but uh, that, that's further away, not near the village where nobody goes. <laughs> oh, perfect. Okay. We've got a couple of emails here. Uh, one is from Mason. Mason says, hello from Portland, Maine. Is this cider alcoholic? So I think that's, we're talking about Perry cider. Mm -hmm. Is it alcoholic? Yes, definitely. <laughs> is it, it to the same extent uh, as uh, cider made from apples? Uh, it varies. I mean, uh, apple cider, what, I, I don't know, do you call it hard cider in Canada? Uh, yeah, we called it, yeah. Call it? Mm -hmm. We just call it cider. So, yeah, I mean, that has a range between, what, 6 and 8% if you let it ferment dry. Pears tend to have a bit more sugar, um, but they also have sorbitol, which doesn't ferment out. Uh, so you often get a little bit of remaining uh, sugar. Um, it varies a lot. We can also talk about that later because sorbitol has other interesting effects. Um, but generally between seven to nine percent alcohol, so a little bit more. Interesting. OK, we also have an email here from Debbie. Um, so Debbie writes, really looking forward to today's show on ancient pear trees and Perry. I'm wondering about the hardiness of pear trees. Thanks very much from Debbie. So hardiness. OK, what are your thoughts on that? That's a good one. Um, I mean, pears are growing everywhere from from kind of west counties of England through to the foothills of the Alps. Um, we were talking before the show about the, how cold it gets here, uh, so it, it doesn't get that cold, I guess. So there's a period in in February where it might go to minus twenty for a few weeks, and the, the pears are quite fine with that. I'm not an expert on the uh, growing zones of North America, so I couldn't say where things grow, but I think pears generally are quite hardy. I mean, if you're growing on smaller so. trees, mm -hmm. there Sorry, are rootstocks. Yeah, there are rootstocks like uh, Bud uh, 9 or whatever, um, that, um, not Bud 9, a pirate dwarf, whatever, that might be a bit more frost resistant than others if you're growing smaller trees. But I think if you're getting into seedling trees that are really, really big, by the time they by the time they grow, I think they're, they're pretty hardy. So we have a comment here from Paul. Hello from Yonkers, New York, Susan and guest. That's you, Barry. Uh, your guest is from Germany, but sounds Irish. I love the accent. <laughs> is there a recipe that Barry can share? Thanks. And thank you, Paul, because that kind of leads us into 
recipes and making perry out of pear trees. So first of all, you might want to explain why you have an Irish accent and you're living in Germany. And then we can talk about recipes. Well, I am Irish. I'm from Dublin and uh, we moved to uh, Germany 13 years ago. My wife is from this area, so I blame her. <laughs> it's all her fault. So in terms of recipes, uh, I think what Paul is asking here is when you are making Perry cider, is it common to be mixing many different uh, varieties? Is it common to just use fruit from seedling trees? Does it even make a difference? What type of fruit you use for your Perry in terms of what types of pears? Yeah, I I like to experiment a lot. Um, a lot depends on what you've got, I guess. So if, if there's um, enough of a certain fruit from a single tree or a single variety, I will make uh, single variety perries, um, mainly because I want to know what they do. <laughs> so if it's a variety I've never used before, I, I'd like to know what are the properties? Is it, you know, how much tannins does it bring? Uh, how much of a fruity flavor? Uh, what, are the, what are the acids doing? What are the properties? And uh but I also do a lot of, of blending in the press. And a lot of that is kind of, well, okay, I'm going to take some extremely tannic peri pears, you know, stuff you just couldn't even bite into. Uh, maybe bring in some more acidic, some lighter varieties that are more juicy, like Schweizer Vosse Vienna, you know, trying to, trying to get a blend in my head. But a lot of it is trial and error. And uh, if I find that it works, I'll, I'll repeat it. If it doesn't work, then the following year, because you only get the chance to do it once a year. Uh, the following year, I'll maybe tweak that recipe if it's going in the direction that I want. But you can also, um, what a lot of makers do, is do single variety um, perries. So you, you ferment them, let them finish, and then do the blending afterwards. And there you've got a lot more control because you can say, okay, I know what the, what the final product is like from, from these different varieties, and I can bring a little bit of this, a little bit of that to get to the, the end product that you might want to have. I have never heard of that. That is very interesting. So I know you actually sell your Perry. You've got your website. Um, so when you sell Perry, is that how you kind of assemble your flavors? You do the single varieties and then you mix them together to in a way that you know is going to work? I tend not to do uh, post-ferment blending. So I either do single variety and stick with that. Um, or as I said, there, there are, let's say, blends that I've done in the past in the press. So, uh, you know, I mill them and press them with different components, different types of pairs. And in some cases, it really is, uh, you know, uh, necessity being the mother of invention that uh, we've only got so many pairs from a few trees. And okay, okay, I'll just use them and I'll put them in the press. More often than not, that ends up being the best perry of the year. <laughs> I was going to say, like, do, are those the ones that you kind of think, oh, well, I'm kind of embarrassed to sell that. Um, <laughs> no, they, they, uh, they end up being really good. And then it's, it's not repeatable because I don't know what's in it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But I guess that's what makes them special. Yeah. Um, let's, yeah. It's so unique. Um, we've got an email here from Steve. Hi, listening to you from Delson, Montreal. Very interesting. Our apple cider here is non-alcoholic, but it's called cider. Why is cider that is made with pears also called cider, but it is alcoholic? Thanks. Hmm. Well, pear, uh, let's say the drink made of pears is called perry. Uh, if it's only made of pears, it's perry. 
Uh, and I think North America is probably the only place where um, cider with alcohol is called hard cider. I mean, it's an historical thing, you know, different different countries, different regions have different traditions. And uh, I always find it strange that apple juice is called cider in North America. <laughs> so uh, in, in our over this side of the Atlantic, at least, if it's made of apples, it's cider. If it's made it's from cider. pears, it's perry uh, with alcohol. If it now, doesn't have alcohol, it's either peri juice or pear juice or apple juice. Oh, pear juice. Right. Exactly. So, okay. A lot of the people listening to this show uh, grow fruit trees and many grow pear trees and many maybe Bartlett pears or any of the modern varieties. Would those be appropriate for making peri? Can you just juice and ferment your Bartlett pears and turn up, you know, have a really nice peri as a result? That's a good question. So, I don't see why not. Um, so let, let's go back to, to, to cider or hard cider for a moment. So th there are people who, I don't want to call them gatekeepers, let's say purists, <laughs> uh, who would say that you can't make a good cider unless you're using cider apples. Um, frankly, I think that's wrong because, um, well, it does a huge disservice to um, other traditions that are not, let's say, the English Western counties or French traditions where, you know, cider apples are used, are very either tannic or quite acidic apples. Now, but usually there's a uh, tannin uh, component in there. Uh, the German cider tradition, for example, uses predominantly acid-led dessert apple varieties, as does the English Eastern counties and uh, the Asturian or Basque cedar tradition. So I'd be a total hypocrite <laughs> if I said peri can't be made with dessert pears. <laughs> And I've done it myself as well, but it's not without challenges, I think. So um, while the acids of dessert um, apple ciders can help keep them, so it's like a natural preservative, often those acids um, would be missing in dessert pears. So without the acids and without the tannins, um, plenty of old texts basically say that uh, a, a peri won't keep long. So it won't keep well. And obviously back in those days, they were very interested in, in drinks that kept well because they weren't using lots of preservatives and stuff. So um, they say the same thing about um, some peri pear varieties that have relatively low levels of tannin. So for example, we use a variety here called Schweitzer Wasserbien, and that's the Swiss water pear as a translation. Uh, it's very common around this area. And um, the old text would recommend to basically add a portion of crabapple uh, into the mix when you're when you're pressing them straight into the press with it so maybe something like 10 percent to basically add the acidity that would otherwise be missing and this is supposed to help add structure cut through the, the sweetness of the dessert pear uh, peris and uh, a bit yeah a bit like so some of the traditions other traditions here is uh, when you're making an apple cider in, in this region of germany at least you would add a portion of peri pears to it <laughs> to add tannin to the cider so it's a bit like that in reverse um so yeah you you can make peri from dessert pears but it has its own challenges let's say um uh, compared to me using peri pears so peri pears maybe to explain the difference between peri pears and dessert pears in this case is peri pears have usually massive amounts of tannin uh, so you can't bite into them. You can't eat them. You know, you pick them from the tree and you go, God, that's a juicy looking pear and you bite into it and your teeth are just go furry and it's like pulling your cheeks together and most people just have to spit them out. Uh, they, they've either got massive amounts of acid and massive amounts of, of tannins that they're totally inedible. 
So you've, you've stories about, uh, you know, going back a couple of hundred years, but, you know, peri pears being certain varieties being so tagged that even the pigs won't eat them. <laughs> so what does the tannin do? For the peri? Well, to me, um, this is the difference between, um, you know, you, let's say cider and, 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 and peri, the levels of, of, of tannin and the peri pears are just so big. So that you, can, you can't compare it to using dessert pears in that case. So I think it's totally valid. Make a drink. If you've got dessert pears, make a drink with them. But you may have to do some things to, to get the structure that you need, that it's not just a sweet thing. Whereas the peri pears, um, those tannin bombs really add structure to the drink uh, when it's finished. And even though I can say the pigs wouldn't eat them, some of these varieties were were really renowned uh, for making them the very best peri. So after a year or two of aging, the tannins would kind of settle down. And it just, it's hard to describe. You have to drink them. So I really, really like peris that have big tannins and they kind of dry your cheeks out. Um, you know, it's like a, a rich red wine, you know. But you also have peris that are made of more acidic varieties, like like thorn, for example, which I know you can get in, in North America, which are, let's say, more acid-led and they're bright and full of summer fruit. And uh, there's a whole range there. So I'd say if you if you don't have access to peri pears, try it. Um, you could also look for uh, wild pears, um, you know, stuff going out. So Raging Cider in San Diego, for example, I know they go foraging for basically seedling pears and they're pretty close to, to peri pears that we might have in Europe. Um, Rev Nat Cider was also telling me he uh, has made peri using Bartlett because it's just so commonly available, but he found it one dimensional and a bit sweet. So what he did was he uh, started dry hopping them. So adding hops to the finished product to basically, again, bring structure, offset the sweetness that the dessert pears have, because, as I said, lacking the tannins and lacking the, the sugars, they might tend to be a little bit one dimensional. We have an interesting question from Vince. Vince says, or a comment here, mixing some peris can cause it to go very cloudy like milk. This yes. can't be fixed. So test with small quantities first. And Vince is from the UK. Yeah, absolutely, Vince. So I've had that experience myself. Um, I've made a peri in 2019, I think it was, and I used 60% um, uh, peri pears. So we these really tannic pears, and then it was 40% conference pears. And it, it stayed milky. Even after a year aging, it stayed milky. I ended up calling it Pale Rider, but it was very nice. <laughs> but it's just not what you expect. It's, it looked like a, a New England IPA. <laughs> so was it uh, an appealing look? Is that milkiness make it look like, eh, maybe I don't want to drink that? Uh, I found the Germans liked it because the, the Germans tend to like their beer. So what they say, Natur Trube, uh, which is naturally cloudy. So like a Hefeweizen or something like this. They think it's healthier if it's kind of cloudy. Um, I'm not sure about the English, but uh, I, I did send bottles over and, and people liked it. Okay, good to know. We have another question. This one's from Sue. <laughs> I'd like to know this as well. Hello, are Barry's products available here in Canada? And Sue's from <laughs> London, Ontario. <laughs> yeah. No, no, they're not. Oh, so. mean, horrible. So, yeah, we <laughs> want to, Sue and I want, want a special delivery. Um, I had an interest, some interesting conversations about you and about this on Facebook. 
So one comment was uh, Carmen. I don't know where Carmen's from, but she wrote, I have two peri pear trees that I got from Fedco that I planted about five years ago, but they haven't produced any pears yet. So I don't know what they will be. I make mead. So I planted them specifically for that. So I guess the question here is, you know, we talked about how peri pear trees, these pear trees that are not for dessert pears, they can take a long time to establish themselves. Um, you know, how long is long? Do you think Carmen might have to wait 20 years until she gets any fruit on these peri pear trees? It depends on the rootstock. So if it's a seedling rootstock, it could be 10 to 15 years <clears throat> before you see any amount of fruit. So we've got some trees, uh, they're 15 years old now. They weren't planted by me because it was obviously before I moved to this village, uh, but we've taken over the care of them. And um, I think this year was the first year that they carried anything of significance. If you have a dwarfing rootstock, they will tend to fruit quicker. Okay, so that's good to know. For people who are interested in planting some peri-pear varieties, and we are going to talk about them more um, after a little commercial break, but I had another interesting story from Facebook. This was from Gloria from Central, uh, from coastal BC, British Columbia here in Canada. So Gloria writes, I'm growing peri-pear trees. They haven't fruited yet, but I do see flower buds on a few. Now, Gloria writes, I won a best in class and gold medal for Perry at the Great Lakes International Cider and Perry competition this year. Excellent. She's, isn't that nice? She says, I find Perry is more delicate and more champagne-like when done right and when proper fruit is used. She says, there is very little pear flavor with Perry fruit uh, with an untrained palate. So it's not like those sticky, sweet, mass-marketed pear ciders that taste of fresh pears. That's not the real thing, according to Gloria. She says, the flavor of pear is there in a good peri, but it's not a smack-you-in-the-face pear flavor. So she said, my peri had a strong vanilla custard note, which is very cool, but not creamy, buttery like Chardonnay can be. It was floral on the nose, on the nose, and it changes and changed a lot as it crosses the palate. And it had a beautiful long finish. It was three years old and dry. This peri was made from one hundred percent one single pear variety from an unknown or seedling tree that she doesn't own. <laughs> so I don't know where she got this this fruit from. She found the tree. She had no idea what it was going to be like. She did a single varietal and it was award-winningly fantastic. How go. do you feel about that? I think that's absolutely fantastic, Laurie. <laughs> I'm jealous. I can you please send me some scions over? I want that tree. <laughs> I she's, know. She's, she's absolutely right. Um you know, the, the, the flavors you can get from Perry, it, it, it doesn't taste like Perry. It's absolutely right. Unless it's something that's, um, uh, you know, medium or sweet, that there's a lot of kind of unfermented juice left there. But th those flavors she's describing, I'm, I'm getting really thirsty. <laughs> I know, me too. And that's as soon as I read the strong vanilla custard notes, I'm like, okay, I need to have some of this stuff. Maybe she's not that far away me. maybe like i don't know bc oh, go, it's a go. little flight but <laughs> <laughs> but gloria said one very interesting thing there saying champagne like and this is definitely the case there are even um some varieties here that's so called the champagne pratiana 
so champagne, actually brat Bühne translate directly as a cooking pair, but the brat Bühne class of pairs in Germany were reputed to make the very best um, pear wines. And the champagne brat Bühne was named so because it was indistinguishable from the finest champagne. And there are even stories in uh, from England so in England, basically in the 17th century, they wanted uh, Perry to be the English wine. And uh, because of the wars going on with, with France and uh, with uh, the Netherlands or Holland at the time, uh, they wanted to basically establish a local wine industry. Uh, so they wouldn't have to be importing stuff from France and Germany and, and Spain and whatnot. And Perry was, you know, the, the desired uh, local wine, let's say. And they were doing tests, you know, with with wine merchants and stuff, doing blind tastings where Perry was indistinguishable or uh, preferred compared to some of the finest wines that they'd been importing at the time. What a shame that it's been such so sidelined over the years. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. So there it's interesting. There are lots of interesting cultivars of pear trees that are these heirloom varieties um people shared on facebook there's one called butt b-u-t-t yeah. <laughs> um and then there's one called stinking bishop mm-hmm. um summer Bloodburn. that was one of them so i want to talk a little bit about these historic cultivars um are you okay waiting on the line we'll listen to a few words from our sponsors and then let, let's dig into some of the cultivars that people may consider planting in their yards. What do you think? Absolutely. Okay, wonderful. So we will be back in just a minute to talk more about peri pear trees. You are listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show and Podcast brought to you by the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. This is Reality Radio 101, and I'm Susan Poisner, author of the Fruit Tree Care book, Growing Urban Orchards. And we'll be back right after this break. Did you know that Susan Poisner of OrchardPeople.com teaches fruit tree care courses online? Here's a testimonial from Roger, a student from Howe Island, Ontario. Some years ago I retired and I wanted to have some fruit trees, so I did the usual. I went to the big box stores and, and bought what they had and I planted them and I had some successes but more failures. In fact, I was almost ready to give up when I discovered Susan's online course. It taught me a lot of what I thought I knew but didn't know. It's in uh, bite-sized pieces that you can easily understand and you can review the course whenever you want. Last year I had such success that this year I had to do very little in terms of pest management, either with insects or with disease. If you want to grow organic fruit trees, join Susan for a workshop at orchardpeople.com workshops. For 10% off tuition, use the discount code PODCAST. If you're listening to this show, you are passionate about fruit trees. But do you care how your trees are grown? 
Silver Creek Nursery is a family-owned business, and we grow our fruit trees sustainably using only organic inputs. We stock a huge range of cultivars, like Wolf River, an apple tree that produces fruit so large you can make an entire pie with just one apple. We also carry red-fleshed apples, like Pink Pearl, as well as heirloom and disease-resistant varieties of apples, pears, apricots, cherries, and more. We ship our trees across Canada, and we can also supply you with berry canes and edible companion plants to plant near your trees. At Silver Creek Nursery, we grow fruit trees for a sustainable food future. Learn more about us at silvercreeknursery.ca. If you're thinking of planting fruit trees and you're looking for a wide selection of cultivars, consider Wiffle Tree Nursery. Our 62-page full-color catalog includes over 300 varieties of fruit and nut trees, berries, grapes, and other edible perennial plants. Not only that, in our catalog we help you through the selection process with tips and advice about all aspects of growing fruit trees. You can learn about adding nitrogen-fixing plants, rootstock choices, and even about planting a windbreak if you have a windy site. We're a one-stop shop as we sell fruit tree care books, pruning tools, organic sprays, and natural fertilizers. We're located in Alora, Ontario, but we can ship all over Canada. Call us at 519-669-1349 to order your catalog. That's 519-669-1349. Wiffle Tree Nursery. Call us today. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To get on board right now, send us an email. Our email address is instudio101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. You are listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show and podcast brought to you by the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. This is Reality Radio 101, and I'm your host, Susan Poisner, author of the Fruit Tree Care book, Growing Urban Orchards. In the show today, we have been talking about pear trees. We've been focusing on those big old pear trees that can live and produce generous harvests for literally hundreds of years. In the first part of the show, we talked about how the pears from these trees were used to make perry cider. In this part of the show, I'd love to talk about the different pear varieties that really shine for, for that use. My guest on the show today is Barry Masterson of Kirtle Writer Cider, who is passionate about using pears from historic trees to make Perry cider. And we are going to continue our chat in just a minute. But first, I would love to hear from you. Send us an email during the live show with a question, a comment, or just to say hi, and we will enter you into today's contest. 
Our prize today is a book called Grow Your Own Mini Fruit Garden, Planting and Tending Small Fruit Trees and Berries in Gardens and Containers, and it's valued at $27.99. To enter the contest, all you have to do is write us at instudio101 at gmail.com, and be sure to include your first name and where you're writing from. That's instudio101 at gmail.com, and we look forward to hearing from you. So Barry, back to you. I, before we dive into these cultivars, the old cultivars, were they only used really for perry making or did was there some way that they could be processed and used for food for humans or animals? Yeah, so uh, in, in England, I'm, I'm not so sure. So perry making was very much the thing to do with, with perry pears there. Um, but we were talking at, at the top of the show about the, the pear trees around here. And one of the things that was really confusing me was there was no extant tradition or living tradition of making perry in, in our region, at least. And I was wondering, why are all these perry pear trees lying around if nobody's using them to make perry? And um, well, obviously schnapps is one thing uh, that can be can be made. Um, and I think I mentioned, so one of the traditions around this region was to add peri pears to the cider to add a bit of structure and uh, you know, bring tannins into uh, the German ciders that otherwise don't have any. Um, but I stumbled across a farming uh, trade handbook from 1806. And uh, I was basically like trying to find uh, you know, more about German peri. And uh, but that had all sorts of information about what they were doing with uh, with pears around this around Germany uh, back in that time. And uh, it turns out pear trees are, are a really important part of farm life. So obviously they were making uh, they were making perry. Um, they were used for feeding pigs in particular. So I think in, across Europe, traditionally, pigs would have been fed acorns in uh, in autumn. Uh, free free foods that would fatten them up but apparently if you fed them a diet of acorns mixed with peri pears they would fatten up much quicker um they would dry the pears so they could use them throughout the year uh, either in the home or as a feed and uh, the best of all <laughs> was uh finding out they would um press the pears and then boil the juice for like 24 hours over a wood fire to produce a syrup and this syrup was used by the common man, as the, the Gemeine man, uh, as a spread on their bread or as a sweetener or in baking. Of course, this was a time before sugar was readily available. I think it wasn't until 1750 or so that uh, they figured out in Germany how to turn sugar beet into you know, actual sugar. Uh, so this is what the farming life was like. They were using pears for all sorts of stuff. And this, to me, was absolutely mind-blowing. Um, the Swiss still do this, by the way. Uh, there's a festival in Switzerland that uh, uh, every year that celebrates making this syrup. They call it they call it Birnel. So Birne is the German word for pear. And um, in Germany, at least until the 1980s, there was one maker uh, making a similar product out of apples. Uh, it was called uh, Apfelkraut. I don't know why they call it Apfelkraut. It's nothing to do with sauerkraut, no cabbage in it. And uh, I guess it's a bit like... Um, Apple butter. Yeah. That is fascinating. So they're using this syrup as a sweetener, I guess, when they're making, I don't know, some pies or desserts or whatever. Um, that is incredible. Okay. 
And this is from these pears that really would not taste good fresh. You cook them up enough, you guess you get the sugar out of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess. And Fantastic. you mentioned sorbitol. What it, What is the role of sorbitol in the fruit? Yeah, so if, uh, pears contain sorbitol, which is an unfermentable sugar. So this is why you can basically let a, a peri ferment as far as it will go. And it will always have a little bit of uh, residual sugar left. Uh, because the sorbitol doesn't ferment out. So the content varies uh, between pear varieties. So the Schweizer Wasserbühne that um, I mentioned earlier, that's really common around here. Um, we had it finishing, it wouldn't ferment anymore. And I think it had like 20 gravity points, which is quite high. Uh, and that's due to sorbitol. Whereas other varieties, you might go down to, you know, six or seven gravity points by the time it's finished. So it would have less. But you have to be very careful uh, with sorbitol because it is a purgative. So it has uh, basically, if you're going for a coloscopy, you could drink a little peri and it'll flush you right out. <laughs> so if you're anyway sensitive to it, and this is really funny as well to me. So these old texts going back a couple of hundred years talking about certain varieties that were um, known purgatives and that if you didn't have a strong country constitution... <laughs> If you weren't used to it, uh, basically, yeah, it would be furious. Furious purging was the word used. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, OK, we got a couple more emails. Lisa writes, enjoying today's show. The last couple of years, I have been experimenting with pears, but strictly in the sense of canning and cooking. Only tried pear cider once or twice, but definitely enjoyed it. What an interesting idea to grow a special pear for drinking. And we're going to talk about those cultivars in just a moment. Winnie writes, uh, hello from Boston, Massachusetts. Maybe a silly question here, but how did the name Perry come about? Was it a name from someone called Perry who invented the cider or because of the fruit's name pear? Hmm. Yeah, I, I imagine it's from the, the name of the fruit. But, you know, that's something I need to look up. So in think... French, it's called Poiré, just like pear. So it's uh -huh. almost uh, so, I mean, the French are also very famous for uh, for producing Perry. Uh, you don't see it very often outside of France, I guess, uh, unless you've got a specialized shop. But uh, in Normandy and places like this, they're big Perry makers also historically. So I could imagine that maybe it came from from French. So Poiré, Perry. Um, okay, so now let's discuss a, a few of your uh, favorite cultivars of pears, maybe something that people might consider planting in their own backyard or in their small orchard. What would be really useful? Oh, I think a lot depends on availability, of course, and where you are. Um, so in England, if I was in England, um, I think varieties like the red pear and gin pear probably two of the most common varieties for let's say larger makers on the, on the commercial sense or the brandy pear or hendry hoofcup um if i was in france so i mentioned uh in, in normally the Donfranc area which are really famous and they have an appellation for their peris where all peri produced there must have at least 40 percent of a variety called plant de blanc uh, I don't have that variety. <laughs> We're right next door to France and it's quite difficult to get French varieties here. So that's one I'm seeking out. Uh, but they've got dozens and dozens of, of pear, pear varieties. Um, if I was in Germany, God, um, yeah, Perry is quite rare and there's only 
yeah, there's probably not very many people making Perry, but uh, there are many uh, local Perry pear varieties. In our region, Champagne Brat Birna, we mentioned this earlier, uh, is probably like a, a poster child for uh, a regional Perry variety and uh, leads to arguments with the French Champagne people who don't like that name being used on bottles that isn't Champagne. Uh, and the Schweizer Wasser Birne is probably the most common variety you'd find around here. I, I understand there are, that there are also some red fleshed uh, uh, peri pears as well. Does that yeah. change the color of the actual drink in the end? They tend not to. So um, red flesh varieties tend to be more curiosity than uh, let's say a useful addition. I, I believe there are a couple of varieties that will retain the color of the juice after pressing, but normally after fermentation, they, they lose the color and they just look like in any other Um and they don't necessarily have uh, massive amounts of tannins, but I think they're, I mean, I know a guy here and he collects them. And uh, there's a chap in England who runs the National Perry Pear Centre and he has a private collection of uh, red fleshed um, uh, pears. So it's a, definitely a fascination. Yeah? And v- they're very old varieties as well. So the Somme Blutbjörne, um, Sanguinol in French, uh, has been around since the, the mid 1600s at least. Incredible. Um, we had in a previous show, we talked about um, a number of previous shows, we've talked about heirloom apples. And it's incredible how each heirloom apple variety has a, a fantastic story that goes with it, who discovered the tree, or who developed it. Um, and so I'm assuming that there will be some peri pear trees that come with a beautiful story as well. Yes, definitely. Uh, God, I mean, they, 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 live for so long and it's just uh, to me amazing that you know these varieties that were being described in books back in 1640 and they're still going strong um i can't think of any story off the top of my head <laughs> so, in terms of you know some nice discovery but um i think just just reading old literature and looking at these like the barland pear for example has was was really famed back then as producing the very best pear uh, perry uh, or the lullum pear, the taint and squash. And actually, some of these are available in North America. So we had a quick look at some, some nurseries and the USDA, for example. And I was really amazed to see some of these like, really ancient uh, varieties that are actually available in North America. So there's, there's some hope. Now, tell me, making perry is different than making cider. And you mentioned to me that harvesting is one of the main differences. Can you tell me what it's like to ha- to be harvesting your pear uh, trees? It's sort of a, it sounds to me like it's a very busy time of year for you guys. It is. Uh, so I think anybody who's bought pears in the supermarket, even for eating, knows what pears can be like. Uh, they're a bit temperamental. They'll be rock hard one day, and then you turn around and look back, and then they're mush. So <laughs> it's the same with peri pears. So trying to find that optimal kind of window of ripeness where they're actually ready to pick and then ready to use can sometimes be really, really tight. Um, so thorn, for example, it's quite an early uh, peri pear, which I think is also available in North America. That like drops and you have to press it within a couple of days to everything that, you know, you have to use them. There are varieties that will keep, but usually, let's say later varieties, things that are maybe ripening and falling off the tree in uh, end of October, November, 
they will keep for weeks. And I really like those because it means I can take my time. But other ones, you know, you might have a week, maybe two to actually work with them. Um, another challenge for us, at least, because we use the big old trees that are lying around. We, we don't have a, like a plantation on dwarf rootstocks that are easy to harvest. You've got these trees that are you know, 10 or 12 meters tall. You can't go shaking the branches of these. So you have to wait. And uh, basically, we visit every couple of days. Sometimes we pray for a storm <laughs> to shake some down. And every couple of days, we're maybe getting a couple of sacks from each uh, from each tree. And uh, yeah, that that's very labor intensive. It's a, it's a lot of work. Uh, so what is the landscape? Yeah. What is the ideal um, sort of ripeness for making the peri? I guess if it's uh, if the fruit is underripe, will the peri not taste very good or overripe? Yeah, there's different schools of thought there. That's such a good question. I wasn't expecting. <laughs> so if they're if they're not fully ripe, uh, they will be quite tannic and maybe quite difficult to get the juice out of. Um, on the other hand, uh, pears ripen from the inside out. So you have to watch very carefully. So if you ever cut open an overripe pear, you see it's going brown on the inside. So it's a bletting process, basically. It's not rotting, it's bletting. A bit like with medlars, you can't eat medlars when they're straight off the, the bush. Um, they have to blet first after the first frosts and the enzymes start working on the, sugar, on the, on the material and uh, they end up looking like a brown mess, but they're partly well, an acquired taste, let's say. Pears do the very same thing. Some pears will keep their form when they're bletting, and they basically turn really dark brown or almost black. And on the inside, then, the flesh of the pear has transformed into something that is like this honeyed sweetness. The tannins have, have almost you know, gone, and uh, there's just more sugars and a very, very rich, kind of almost umami kind of flavor. But they're really difficult to, to work with because it's uh, if you run them through the mill, it, it's not like uh, if you're milling apples, you know, you've got this nice structure. You've got pieces of apple. When you press it, the juice has a has a structure to be able to come out th through the pieces, let's say. If it's a paste, uh, like with really overripe pears, the juice doesn't come out and the efficiency is dreadful. So I try to aim for something kind of in between. If they're just starting to bled, if they're just starting to go brown on the inside, I like that. But with some varieties, you're better off uh, pressing before. Otherwise, it, the, the juice turns kind of uh, turbid and kind of oily looking. So your mileage may vary and uh, different traditions, different schools of thought have their own way of, of doing it. But as long as it's a nice drink at the end of it, I don't think it really matters. Um, we have an email from Vince who wrote before as well. Vince writes, Red Longden is a good variety yes. as it is a large pear that keeps well. So pressing does not have to be rushed like some varieties and makes a very nice perry. So that's Vince from the UK. Good tip. Is that is Red Longden something you've used in the past? No. So uh, I'm building a collection of English uh, varieties at the moment. So you, you can't get English varieties normally in Germany. Um, so till now I've been using whatever's available locally, but I'm building a collection and uh, I, the Red Longdon isn't on my list, but I've uh, about 30 other varieties uh, from England that uh, I grafted uh, last year and will be grafting this year. And so you, what kind of rootstock have you grafted onto? Because do you really want to wait 15 years until you get fruit from <laughs> your peri pear trees? Yeah, this is a tough one for me. So um, 
I grafted onto seedling rootstock because uh, the project that we're doing at the moment is to create a traditional uh, Streuobst visa. So it's a German um, meadow orchard, basically, where you have full standard trees and a flowering meadow underneath. So um, I started this project last year. I had very generous uh, sponsors sponsoring trees uh, so we could buy a plot of land and uh, this year we will sow the meadow and start planting the tree. So the, the goal for me with this collection was to preserve uh, rare, endangered, or let's say, um, yeah, significant varieties from England, Germany, Austria, Switzerland. I don't have the French ones yet. So that was my goal there on seedling uh, rootstock. Kirkensala um, Moschbirne is the, the rootstock generally used for full standard trees here. But um, the, yeah, I'm kind of I kind of wish I hadn't done that now because I found another rootstock that I'd much rather use, um, which is resistant to pear decline. This is a kind of a hot topic at the moment. So fire blight, pear decline are two very nasty uh, diseases that can affect pears. And if I'm planting rare trees that I want to, they will long outlive me. They'll long outlive my my son, and I hope they'll be still there in 400 years. Um, I may regraft these trees onto uh, these new rootstocks um, that are resistant to pear decline disease. Slightly smaller than a full seedling, about 20% smaller, uh, but it's, it's quite new and it's the first year they're available to buy uh, by normal people like myself in Germany. So with your business, you've got this wonderful little business. You are selling your Perry. You've got a website. What's your website? Can you share it with us? That's the kertelreiter.de. Sorry, punkt Point de <laughs> switched to German automatically. Sorry. <laughs> so K E R T E L, which is Kertel, which is the stream that flows past our, our house here, and Reiter or E I T E R, which is a, a rider. I, I don't know if I need to explain why it's called Kertel Rider, and then point uh, dot de for Germany. So you are creating this Perry. Are you? Do you have like a facility to make it, or is it from your kitchen? Um, you know, where are you making your parry? Uh, I, I make it out the front yard. So in the, in the pressing, we do it out the front. So out in the open, we do have a large barn, but um, uh, I need to convert that first to get a you know flooring in and uh, and uh, you know drains and that type of thing. But uh, we live in an old farmhouse, and basically the cider cellar is uh, uh, right below me. It's a former cow stall because it was a farmhouse. And that's where the fermenters are, are basically stored. But the pressing and the dirty and wet work uh, we do out in the front yard uh, in autumn. So I've, we're going to find out who won the contest in a minute. But I have to ask you, where does this passion come from? What is it about pear trees and, and perry that just seems to mesmerize you? What is it about it that's special? I'm not sure I can explain that. <laughs> Um, I think yeah, anybody who's in this in the cider industry or anybody who's interested in drinks like this, you know, apples are the star. Everybody plants apple trees. If I look around here, you know, if anybody from the local nature conservation uh, organizations, they're planting apple trees. It's important. I think it's really important. They're planting old cultivars. They're preserving old varieties and old ways and, you know, with the big standard trees and that type of thing. But very few people... Um, actually think about the peri pears you know very few makers doing it so like i said i can think of a handful of makers in germany 
England's very lucky to have the likes of the Ross and White Cider Company or Tom Oliver or Greg's Pit or Little Pomona producing really, really good Perrys from old heritage varieties. Um, so I think the more people who will take the time to plant these trees and preserve these varieties, I think it's really important. Um, like I said, 400 years ago, it was going to be, you know, the wine of England. And uh, we didn't mention that the Austria has still has a very uh, thriving uh, Perry uh, tradition. Uh, I've just discovered in the Pfalz, so in the in the Palatine area of Germany, there's a small pocket there where they're still making Perry in a very traditional way uh, with, you know, varieties that are only available there. Well, now I've got a couple. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just such an almost forgotten uh, drink. And it's it's just so bloody good. <laughs> it deserves to be recognized. I think it's it's just wonderful. And the well, history. I'm so has... I'm so so glad that you're bringing it back. That is wonderful. So now is the time to find out. We had lots of people write in during the show, and one of them will win our prize today. The prize is a book called "Grow Your Own Mini Fruit Garden: Planting and Tending Small Fruit Trees and Berries in Gardens and Containers," valued at twenty seven ninety nine. And Gary is in the studio. Gary. Yes, we are ready. <laughs> Barry, what we're going to do is I have all the names in a plastic little bucket. I'm going to shake the bucket and you will hear it. And then you tell me when to stop. Okay. Are you ready? Okay. Here we go. Stop. All right. Hang on, please. And I'll pull... A piece of paper out here. And the winter winner of the book is Debbie M. from Colorado. Debbie M., wonderful. Congratulations, Debbie. Good job. So, Debbie, you won the book. We are going to email you and uh, get your address, and we will get that book sent to you as soon as possible. And thanks to all of you who participated and sent in questions during the show. And I want to thank you, Barry, for spending this time with me, educating me. Um, I realize this is episode, I think, 78 of the Urban Forestry Radio Show and Podcast. Episode, no, it's episode 76. I have done 76 shows all on various fruit tree topics. And this is my first one on pear trees. So just like you were saying how everybody pays all so much attention to apples, right? And nobody pays attention to pear trees. So we've got to correct that now. <laughs> a very good start. <laughs> it's a good start. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. And um, yes, if anybody wants to know more about you, they can go to your website and learn some more. And also, uh, you are on Twitter, right? What's your Twitter handle? That's, that's an easy one. That's Barmas, B-A-R-M-A-S. Okay, great. Thanks for coming on the show. And that's it for today, everybody. You've been listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show and Podcast. And if you missed part of the show or uh, you want to learn, listen back, or if you want to listen to some previous episodes, we've got lots of great episodes on heirloom apples, for instance, or how to grow all sorts of types of different fruit trees and berry bushes. So all you have to do is go to orchardpeople.com slash podcasts. 
and you will see a lot of other shows on all sorts of topics. If you want to learn more about growing fruit trees, go to orchardpeople.com. I've got articles. I have courses and all sorts of stuff. So that's all for today. I hope you guys will join me again next month when we are going to dig into another wonderful fruit tree care topic. So uh, see you next month. And thanks so much for tuning in. It's Susan Poisner from Orchard. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. To learn more about the show and to download the podcast where I cover lots more great topics, you can visit orchardpeople.com slash podcast. The show is broadcast live on the last Tuesday of every month. And each time I have great new guests talking to me about fruit trees, food forests, and arboriculture. If you're interested in learning more about growing your own fruit trees or just about living a more sustainable life, go to orchardpeople.com and sign up for my information-packed monthly newsletter. If you like this show, please do like our Orchard People Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter at at Urban Fruit Trees. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's been wonderful to have you as a listener, and I hope to see you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101.